So good to see you all here today. I'm Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you have chosen to join us today. We are continuing on in our summer sermon series, The Gospel According to Mark. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark one or two chapters a week, and only a couple more weeks left after today. And so, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in here. Have you ever noticed that? Lots of stories and things that happen, even just in something like the book of Mark, that we don't even have the time in a 30-minute sermon to cover an entire chapter's worth of content. Otherwise, we'd be here for like four hours. And so each week, whoever's been preaching, we've just been picking just a, a snippet of a chapter or a passage and focusing on that during our time together. Today, we are looking at chapters 11 and 12, so two whole chapters. Now, if you're like me, maybe you come into Sunday and you're anticipating, yeah, this is the chapter that we're looking at, and I, I'm going to try to speculate like what the pastor is going to preach on on Sunday. I guarantee you, nobody correctly speculated what we're talking about today. Guaranteed. So we're in Mark chapter 12, and uh, there's a lot of different things that are happening in chapters 11 and 12 leading up to what we're talking about today. Today we are talking about taxes. Taxes! Woo! I got one woo! Yeah, was that one of the CPAs in the room? Um, Yes. We are talking about taxes today. And you know what they say? The two certainties of life, death and taxes. Well, we talk about death in church, but how often do we talk about taxes, right? Just to be clear, we may be talking about taxes today, but we're not really talking about taxes. I'm not up here to give you a spiel about paying your taxes and whether or not it's biblical and talk about the government, and that's not the point of today. We have bigger things at stake here. And so regardless of your feelings, positive or negative, about taxes or government or anything like that, I'm just going to encourage you to put that aside for today and to be able to just focus on the bigger picture of what Jesus is trying to teach us today. All right? So we're going to go ahead and jump in. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. It's a short story. We're just a few verses. So we're going to read the whole story, and then we're going to come back and kind of walk through it piece by piece to help make some more sense out of what's happening here. So Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13, says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by other people because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar and Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So what does this mean? We're supposed to pay our taxes? Is that what this is really all about? Well, let's go back up to the beginning and let's break this down a little bit more. Verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now setting the stage for the story a little bit, the they this is talking about is calling back to earlier in chapters 11 and 12. There's a group of chief priests and teachers of the law and elders, basically the spiritual and religious, the spiritual and social leaders of, the, of Jerusalem who are spending time having conversations with Jesus and they're asking him questions. That's what's been happening. Now this is sometime later that day, later that week, they send the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus. Well, who is that? 
The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders, and really the Pharisees and Herodians, they were, they were two groups who hated each other. They differed, they had very different opinions on things, and really it came down to one crucial issue, the rule of Rome. See, Israel was part of the Roman Empire at this time. It was under Roman rule. The Pharisees despised the Roman rule, and they felt that God was the only one who could rule over them. But the Herodians, they believed in the Roman rule. They accepted the leadership of Rome over them. So we have two very different groups with respect to the rule of Rome coming together and coming to Jesus. So just keep that in the back of your mind for a moment. Verse 14, they, the Pharisees and Herodians, they came to Jesus. They said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by other people because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Do you notice how they try to butter Jesus up with this false flattery that they didn't really mean? And then they also are kind of passive aggressive in it. It's like that flattering comment that somebody makes that's actually meant to cut deep. And that's exactly how they are here with Jesus. Luke's version of this story tells us that they were spies who pretended to be honest. So they didn't care about Jesus. They weren't interested in what he had to, to actually teach. They were just coming with an agenda. They had a purpose. They are setting him up for that right hook so they can ask the big question and knock Jesus down. That is really what it's all about. They're trying to trap him. And that's when they ask the big question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now this may seem like a silly question because regardless of, of how we've grown up and how we feel about taxes, most of us learn that we're supposed to pay taxes. So wouldn't Jesus' answer just be an easy yes? Well, this is where you have to remember we've got two very different groups coming before Jesus. If Jesus says that it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, then that upsets the Pharisees because they can accuse Jesus of yielding to Roman rule rather than the rule of God over the people of God. But if Jesus says not to pay taxes to Caesar, then that upsets the Herodians because they believe in the Roman rule. And so they could report him to the Romans for insubordination, for failure to pay taxes. And this is exactly their goal. They are trying to trap Jesus in this lose-lose situation. No matter what he says, he can't possibly win. They were centering on their hatred for Jesus. But, verse 15 continues, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Now, you may be able to think of a time where you found yourself in a spiritual conversation or really a conversation about any topic for that matter, where you feel trapped. You feel like they got you and you just don't know what to say. They, they caught you in your words and you just, it's not a good feeling. Maybe even on the other side of that, where you feel like that brainiac genius who totally just caught somebody else in their words and you trapped them and there was no way out and it feels good, Right? Imagine how the Pharisees and Herodians are feeling right now. We got him. We got Jesus. We trapped him. There's no way out of this. There's no escape. This isn't the first time that we see Jesus in a situation like this. 
In fact, throughout his ministry, we see time and time again where groups like this come and they try to trap him and, and get him to say the wrong thing and get him in trouble. And Jesus somehow, some way, always manages to escape, to find that, that third option, that middle ground that stays true to the Father and yet somehow satisfies both sides. So how does he respond here? Well, our story concludes. Jesus says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? And I imagine they're kind of hesitant, like, all right, where is Jesus going with this? Uh, Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Did you catch that? That incredible mic drop moment? We got to back it up just a little bit more and explain one more crucial piece of this. What is a denarius? A denarius was the main Roman coin of the day that was essentially equivalent to a day's wages. So you go to work for the day, you get your denarius at the end of the day, repeat the next day. You're likely to have a lot of denarii lying around. Now, I got to tell you, I really wanted to have a real, legit denarius to show you today. And, um, you know, just so you can see what they look like and, and be able to see kind of what Jesus was talking about 2,000 years ago. Now, they, of course, don't still make them. This is 2,000 years ago, of course. But I found a few for sale online through an Israeli antiquities shop right in Jerusalem. And so it was only $700 for the coin, plus shipping, which cost a pretty penny to rush it here in time for today's sermon. So, um... Church, thank you for your contributions to today's sermon. And please know that your giving is well used and well stewarded here at the church. Okay, so I didn't actually buy a supposedly real 2,000-year-old Roman denarius from a sketchy pawn shop website. This is just a quarter. I guess the picture will just have to suffice. This is what a denarius looked like in Jesus' day. So, looks pretty cool, right? And like it's 2,000 years old. The image on the left, that's the front. That's Tiberius Caesar Augustus. He was the Caesar, the emperor, at the time of Jesus' ministry and crucifixion. Now, on the right-hand side, the back side, that is believed to be his wife, Livia, and she's depicted as a Roman goddess. Now, my Latin is a little bit rusty, but I believe that inscription says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus pointing to the fact that the Romans viewed his father, Caesar Augustus Octavian, the original Caesar, as divine. So when I was in college, I had the opportunity to take a classical archaeology class on ancient coins to fulfill a humanities requirement. Now, I always found money fascinating. Who doesn't? So I thought I'd give it a try. thought it'd be pretty cool. And much to my excitement and anticipation, the class was incredibly boring. It was so boring. We spent hour after hour staring at slide after slide after slide of ancient Greek and Roman coins over many, many centuries that basically all started to look the same. Like this, right? They all looked the same. If I'm being honest, I skipped that class probably more than any other in college. It was first thing in the morning on the other side of campus, three days a week, and there's a lot of days it was just easier to stay home and sleep. 
Now, I won't lie to you, there were some cool parts to the, to the class. We actually had the opportunity a few times to go to an archaeology museum on campus, and we actually got to, to see these, some of these coins that we were studying in class, to hold them in our hands and, and to get to realize that they're actually real. You know? That was really cool. But really the only thing that got me through that class was spending class time fantasizing about my professor secretly being Indiana Jones in his spare time. <laughs> and the truth is, he was no Harrison Ford in any way, shape, or form. But in spite of my boredom, there is something that I took away from that class. And it's amazing to think that it applies to your walk with God, even. You see, in this era, when coins bore the image, of, the image and the inscription of somebody, technically, it was their property and it belonged to them, and they could do whatever they wanted with them. So coins like this denarius that bore the image of Caesar therefore belonged to Caesar, and he could do whatever he wanted with them. He had every right to demand whatever he wanted in taxes. In, taxes. in essence, that which belongs to the government is to be used to pay the government. So what does this have to do with Jesus' response we bear the image of God. Therefore, we belong to God. Jesus tells him to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but he's not as interested in that part of the equation. He cares more about giving to God what is God's, what belongs to him, ourselves, us. We are created in his image. He deserves our best, our whole selves, all we have to give. And so they seemingly trap Jesus in this lose-lose situation. And yet with his response, Jesus simultaneously satisfies the Herodians by talking of paying taxes to Caesar, but also satisfying the Pharisees by talking about the rule of God in our lives. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Boom. Jesus drops the mic, walks off, and they're all standing there amazed like, we thought we had him. How did he escape that? How did he get out of that? Well, in these days, because the Roman Empire was so vast, there are people scattered all throughout the world, all throughout the empire, most of whom had never and would never see the emperor himself. They would never see Caesar. They didn't know what he looked like. They didn't really know much about him. And so these coins were not just used as money, but also in essence as propaganda, basically to spread the image of the emperor around the empire around the world, so that everybody could see what he looked like and recognize his rule and to know more about him. Now, the portraits of the emperors were even often exaggerated to make them seem more godlike in appearance. And it's inter interesting we saw that with even his wife's depiction on that coin and the fact that it referred to his father as divine. That was how they tried to put their Caesars up on a pedestal. Again, as propaganda to spread the image of Caesar and knowledge of Caesar all throughout the empire. Now, this whole coinage analogy we're talking about this morning, it's just that. It's just an analogy. But I'm not saying we're up here as Christians to be propaganda, to convince people to follow Jesus. That's not what it's about. Rather, we serve a significant purpose in reaching this world, and we see some meaningful truths in Scripture in terms of our identity to that end. What does it look like for me as these, these coins to reach the world? So some pieces of identity we see in Scripture. Number one, I am an ambassador of Christ. 
Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors of Christ. Now, an ambassador is someone who represents someone else and goes on their behalf. If I were the U.S. ambassador to the U.K., that would mean I go there and I represent the U.S. I stand on behalf of our interests, our desires, our intentions. I do my best to make my nation known, to represent it well. As an ambassador of Christ, that means that we represent him here on this earth. We stand on behalf of his desires, his intentions, his interests. We do our best to represent him well, to make him known. Second piece of our identity. I am a citizen of heaven. Paul writes this to the Philippian church. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. I'm not a citizen of America or any other country or place in this world so much as I am a citizen of heaven. That's my home. That's where I belong. But I'm not there yet. Third, I am not of the world, but sent into the world. Who's heard the phrase, be in the world, but not of the world? Be in the world, but not of the world. A lot of us have probably heard that before. It's not entirely biblical. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I personally feel like it communicates that I'm stuck here on this earth and I need to do my best to keep my hands off and stay away from the filth of the world because I don't want to be infected with the sin of others and get involved in their problems and their junk. So I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. Rather, we see something a little bit different that Jesus communicates Soon before his crucifixion, he's praying to the Father. He's praying for his disciples. And here's what we see, John chapter 17. Jesus says, they, my disciples, my followers, they are not of the world even as I am not of it. Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So I am not of the world, but I have been sent into it. You see how that changes that phrase? It's less of a hands-off, distanced approach and more of a missional, hands-on, I'm meant to be a part of this approach. I've been sent on a mission. And so even though my citizenship is in heaven, that's my home, I have been sent into the world as Christ's ambassador from heaven to earth. Why? To bear his image throughout the earth. Fourth, I'm commissioned I am commissioned. Some of Jesus' final words before he ascended into heaven are what we know as the Great Commission, him commissioning, sending out his disciples. So he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This great commission, commissioning us, sending us out. Ultimately, it's all about making disciples of all nations, spreading the image of God throughout the world by sharing the gospel with others so that they too can become sons and daughters of God. We see the image of God multiplied as we make disciples, as people choose to trust and to follow him and to shine the light 
that he is. And so we may not be of this world, but we have been sent into it as Christ's ambassadors. We are like those coins that are meant to spread throughout the world, to point to the true ruler, not some Caesar, but to God, the Father, to Jesus, his Son. We bear his image. We share his name. We may not be gods, but we are God-like in appearance as we bear that image of his. And because of his spirit in us, we're meant to walk in all godliness, to point people to him. When people see us, they ought to see just a small glimpse of heaven, just the, the smallest imperfect picture of who God is. And we're not alone in that. Fifth piece of our identity we're talking about today. I am sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the Ephesian church. He says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Just like a coin stamped with the image of Caesar, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, bearing that image of God wherever we go. Are we doing that well? Is it clear that I bear the image of God? Or am I one of those nasty coins covered in gunk that nobody wants because you can't even tell what it is? Am I clearly bearing the image of God well? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Give to God what is God's. So now that we have an idea of where our identity is found and what our role is in reaching the world to that end, what does it look like for us to do this, to give to God what is God's? What does that mean? Well, it could mean a lot of different things. We've talked some in the last couple of weeks about surrender and sacrifice and what are those things that you're holding on to. It could be anything. But just a few different thoughts I want you to consider this morning in giving to God what is God's. The first thought is your plans. Giving God your plans for your life. Letting go of control and trusting that what he has planned for you is good. It's far better than any plans you could even have for yourself. And life is going to go according to God's plan anyways, right? So we may as well get on board. <laughs> I love what God speaks to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Are you giving to God what is God's? Are you giving him your plans? Second, your possessions. Paul writes to the Romans, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Jesus is the ultimate gift. The value of what you give up for God is far outweighed by the value of Jesus and all of the blessings that come along with him. One of my favorite parables in all of scripture, stories that Jesus tells, it's also the shortest and yet perhaps one of the most powerful. The parable of the hidden treasure. In Matthew 13, this is what Jesus says. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, 
When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Do you believe that Jesus is worth it, that the kingdom of God is worth it? Everything you have, everything you are, it's all a gift from God anyways. He's given it to you and entrusted it to you to be a good steward of it. You don't own it. You didn't earn it. You did nothing to deserve it. It's his anyways. Are you giving to God what is God's? Are you giving him your possessions? Third, your body. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes this. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? The Holy Spirit lives in you. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You were bought at a price. What is that price? It's the blood and the death of Jesus, the perfect son of God. That doesn't make us God's slaves. That's made us his children. Having children comes with sacrifice. There's a cost. Things that you have to give up. Changes that have to be made. Sacrifices that you make in order to be a parent. But having children is worth that cost. It's worth that sacrifice. And it was worth it to God. And so if God bought us at a price and he created us in his image, he calls us his sons and daughters, then giving to God what is God's means giving him our whole selves, every part of who we are. Are you giving to God what is God's? Finally, we've been talking about this all morning. Your image. God created you in his image. We see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation story. God created mankind in his own image. And the image of God he created a male and female. He created them. What does this mean to be created in the image of God? We can unpack this for a long time. But just briefly, we are a special creation. The closest thing to God and yet still just a small glimpse of the fullness of who he is. Are you giving to God what is God's? What are you holding on to? What are you unwilling to surrender and give up to him? What sacrifices are you unwilling to make? Now, again, I'm not up here to give a philosophy of taxes or talk about government or anything like that. That's not the purpose of today. But I do want to give you a brief analogy to consider as we start to wrap up here. We started talking about taxes this morning. What are taxes for? We pay taxes to the government that allows them to do things for our society and to run our country. The more I pay in taxes, the more the government can do, in theory, right? Better roads, more amenities, etc., etc. So just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine what the government could do if you gave them everything. All you have. Every part of you. Think of what they could do. Okay, but this isn't about the imperfect government. Think of what a perfect, loving, just God could do if you gave him everything, if you gave him all of yourself, all of who you are. Think of what he could do. It's all his anyways. He's given you this life, and he's given you your gifts and your possessions to steward for his glory. Think of what God could do. Give to God what is God's. Whatever that is that's holding you back, that you're holding on to, 
let go of that, surrender, and sacrifice that to God. As we heard a couple weeks ago, denying yourself, whatever those things are of self that I hold on to, take up the cross and follow after Jesus. In Jesus' day, who determined the value of that denarius? Caesar did. Who determines our value, our worth? God has. And you know what you're worth? His own life. You are worth the life of his son, Jesus, who came to die for us, who lived that perfect life that we were meant to live, but failed in. And he died on that cross, taking the place, paying the penalty for our sins, and resurrecting from the grave, conquering sin and death, so that we could have new life in him, and experience that personal relationship with God, just like we were meant to, that we get to be his sons and daughters. That's what it's all about. So this morning, let's thank Jesus for the price that he paid for us. Let's remember what he did for us on that cross in conquering sin and death so that we could be children of God. Let's give to God what is God's, knowing that we are worth all he had to give. So I'm going to invite the praise team to come forward, and I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we are going to take communion today. And I invite you, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you are more than welcome to come forward and take communion. It's double stacked. So there's the top cup has the juice, the bottom cup has the bread. Make sure you get both of them. And as you think about the sacrifice that Jesus made for you, his death on that cross, his body and his blood that were given for you, the price that he paid, keep that in the back of your mind this morning as we take communion. Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you so much for the goodness of who you are. God, you saw fit to create us as your special, your best creation. Created in your image. Lord, we bear that image. Let us be people who stand up for you, who bear that image well, that people see us and they're pointed to you. Lord, that they would see you at work in our lives. Lord, these pieces of our identity, let us live these out by the power of your spirit in us. And whatever those things are that we find ourselves still holding on to, struggling to let go control of, Lord, help us to do just that, to let go, to give up control. Whatever it is, Lord, you know our hearts. You know what's at stake here. Lord, you know what's going on inside each of us. Father, if there's anybody here today who has not placed their faith in you, who desires to be your son or your daughter, Lord, they can just pray this right now. Father, I believe that you love me, that you created me in your image, that you desire a personal relationship with me. But Father, I'm a sinner. I am a sinner and I can't do it on my own. I can't earn my way to you. Jesus, I believe that you came to this earth, that you lived the perfect life I was meant to live, that you died on the cross in my place to pay, take the penalty for my sins. I believe that you rose from the grave, that you conquered sin and death so that I too could have new life and be a new creation in you. Father, I believe that. I trust that. I want to take this step of faith to begin a relationship with you. 
knowing it's not by anything I've done or deserved. It's only by your grace and your love for me.